Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of current and classic horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews and discussions may include spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. I want you to know something, Wilson. Now, I don't enjoy driving anybody to death row. You try anything. Anything. I've got two guards with shotguns and I'll blow you apart. Sure could use a smoke. You understand me, Wilson? You mumble a little bit. I get the general idea. Let's go. Slip right out of the chair. Yeah. I don't sit in chairs as well as I used to. Get him up. Welcome to another installment of my year-long Masters of Horror celebration, in which I'm joined by a guest every Friday to chat about one of their favorite films from our month's featured director. For the month of January, we're honoring none other than the legendary Rebel of Horror himself, John Carpenter. Today's episode highlights Carpenter's second feature film, 1976's Assault on Precinct 13, which follows a prison transport that's diverted to a defunct LA police precinct the same night a bloodthirsty street gang descends upon the station to enact revenge against a man taking refuge there. Now Highway Patrolman Ethan Bishop and the station secretary Lee must form an unlikely partnership with two convicts, Napoleon Wilson and Wells, if they wish to survive the assault. And joining me today to chat about Carpenter's exploitation action western is BloodyDisgusting.com's video game editor Neil Bolt. Neil, welcome to the show, man. Hi, thanks for having me on to talk one of the greats. Absolutely. I hadn't actually revisited this film in a couple of years, and it was one that I came to really late compared to a lot of the other Carpenter movies, right? Like, I was mm. pretty spoiled. I started with The Thing and then Halloween, and then, of course, I started tracking down all his other films to watch. And this was one of the later ones, just because I was like, oh, well, it's, like, not a horror film. It's an action kind of Western-styled film, and yet in revisiting it, yeah. it very much is a film that just because it's not horror, it feels distinctly like a Carpenter film. It has all of the yeah. qualities of his later films that I love so much, and it's really the That's film it. that kind of introduces you to that style and you just get to watch him build on that throughout the course of his career. Yeah, it's like because um, a lot of Carpenter's work is has a throwback quality to sort of earlier American action cinema anyway. I like, you know, Assault and Prison 13 in particular is Western in all but name. It's, it's uh, as people say, some people go, oh, it's like Night of the Living Dead, forgetting that Night of the Living Dead is copying Rio Bravo, which is where this, again, copies like that. This weirdly does kind of look like it's, you know, being the 70s, if Dawn of the Dead had been more just like the Night of the Living Dead again, you know, you could have done that whole scenario just as well. Then it's great. But yeah, it's, yeah, it's, as you say, not horror in the traditional sense, but it has definitely got those qualities that, that make it uh, a Carpenter joint, if you will. Absolutely. And I'd like to kind of start by asking you your Carpenter origin story. Do you remember the first Carpenter film you saw? Well, funnily enough, it was indeed this one. It, uh, it's like, though Halloween and The Thing did come afterwards, and Christine, I think, as well, were among that sort of bunch. Uh, Christine, because you know, I'd read the book and I was like, oh, yeah, that'd be cool. But yeah, this one, I used to stay around a friend's house like a lot uh, during the summers and stuff. And we'd watch all sorts of stuff. Like it's the first time I watched films like Candyman, films like, like The Dragon, The Bruce Lee Story, uh, even The Karate Kid stuff. And this happened to be one of the films we ended up watching one night. It was like, with no, so no context of who John Carpenter is at this point or whatever. But yeah, you know, had a soft spot for Westerns uh, anyway, a soft spot for this whole you know, style of siege films, if you, if you will. I, li I love that. It's like, you know, I'd already seen Night of the Living Dead as well, so that was in a good reference point. And yeah, I don't know, it just had that thing I like in a lot of movies where it's like, it evokes the quality of time gone by in a different era, you know, and I know that it took a while before I realised, you know, as I said, it was who John Carpenter was beyond that, and I think probably then when it came to watching Halloween on TV one night on Halloween um, and uh, yeah and that sealed the deal for me where I was like oh yeah I like this these films I really like them and it just it snowballed from there I saw the thing that was like yeah you know, those two 
those three are basically you know, they're my top three still to this day. So it's, it's nothing. Yeah, it's as good as a lot of the other films are. He's that that film though in particular, Salt and Precinct Thirteen, just starts such a great streak of films for him. You know, even with the TV movie stuff. And yeah, it, so it holds a special place in my heart for that. You know, with the nostalgic value of it. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, Car- I think that's a lot. That's very relatable to a lot of us, right? We all kind of came mm. to a carpenter joint going over to a friend's house or something kind of like hey there's this crazy movie that i have that you've never seen anything like it and i feel yeah. that at a certain age that is true right he makes these very kind of polarizing mm. movies no matter the genres and he jumps around to a lot of different genres and yet every movie that he makes it definitely feels as if like you real you realize you're watching something that is different it's great this is like greatness to a certain degree whether you have the context of who john carpenter is i mean when we're all kids watching it for the first time, we lack that context, right? Because we're kids. We don't we don't know oh, any yeah. better, obviously. And I mean, of getting to grow up with the internet like myself and getting to then be like, oh man, I remember seeing this as a kid. Why don't I go back and see what else that guy made? And then IMDB, there's this whole treasure trove essentially of all of the Carpenter films yeah. that I obviously <laughs> missed or I wasn't fortunate enough to have friends that had heard of it. I was like, oh, I enjoyed the thing. Why don't I check out this other movie that he made? This is an action movie, though. Assault on Precinct 13? Like, how could that be as good? And then you realize, like, the thing... It doesn't matter the types of story he's telling. Just because that sense of style, I feel like it transcends everything he makes. With this and, you know, with my three favorites, there's a common thread amongst them, which is it's a very contained place in each of them. You know, it's like the Haddonfield, obviously, is like the biggest area, if you will, of the three. They all... You know, they don't stretch too far beyond their boundaries. It's like you know, the Russian dolls of the levels of isolation, if you will. It's like where the thing is this whole thing, you know, they are literally isolated. There's no one else around for miles and miles. Then it's you get to Assault on Precinct 13, where it's like they're in the middle of a city, but somehow, you know, because it's a bad neighborhood and they're shutting down, it's isolated and very, and no one's coming because they've cut the phone lines and such. But and then, as you said, Haddonfield, because it's Halloween night, everyone else is out partying, and it's like they are very much again alone. Like that, that, that isolation in those films, and not knowing what's coming, you know, that night or in that day for you, you know, a seemingly normal situation, no matter how mundane, whether you be at an ice station, a, a closing down police station, or whatever. It, that's the greatness of it. It's like normal situation. Here's what's going to bring them all together straight into it. And Carpenter really works well with that. I think he's probably struggled the most when he does start going beyond that, trying to sprawl out a bit. And yeah, I, I mean, even Prince of Darkness, I think as well, is another one where it's you know, small, mostly single location. And it works because of that. And yeah, definitely his key strength, I think. For friends. sure. And I actually just revisited um, Prince of Darkness recently, and that is one of the very qualities of it that on a rewatch, I picked up on a lot more and I appreciated more and that it is a solo location. Mm. To a certain extent, it has a quality of siege in it where they're trapped in that location, in that church. But it is this idea, again, like you might as well be on another planet because nobody outside of that church in that film can help you or realizes what's going inside. People yeah. are just kind of walking by on the street and nobody really realizes. And your example of Halloween, I mean, Halloween, yeah, it's an entire town and you can still leave, you can come and go from the town. But what about Halloween? Like I live in the suburbs and the Halloween film was the first Mm. slasher that I saw that it wasn't set at a camp. It wasn't dealing with like magic to a certain extent, right? I'd seen Leprechaun prior and I was like, oh, this is like goofy. (laughs) But I mean, hey, it's like, it's fun or whatever. But with Halloween, it was like, There's a guy with a knife walking around a neighborhood that looks just like mine and nobody mm. can track him. Like it made that type of film very real in a way that I hadn't seen before in a slasher. And that's why Halloween is like, like you said, it's one of your favorites. It's one of my favorites just because the film does a very good job of kind of weaponizing your typical American or, uh, suburb. And it does it in a way that it just feels very real in a way that like Friday the 13th never did for me to a certain extent, like Nightmare on Elm Street didn't, even though that's all about suburbs, but that's again, like more of the magic angle and I'd barely sleep anyways. So yeah. I don't worry about that too much, but um, <laughs> in terms of just 
like Carpenter's work in general, why does Assault on Precinct kind of stand out to you the most? It does come back to this. Um, its position in his filmography is one of those things. I mean, you look at that leap uh, between 1974 to 76 to 78, where he goes from Dark Star, which uh, is the weakest point in, in his proper film. I know I get that you know budget constraints, young filmmaker, and all that. But yeah, it's, it was the one film I was like, I, I'm struggling to finish this. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, like whereas even stuff like Memoirs of an Invisible Man, I can, yeah, you know, it was good enough. Yeah, you know, even though it's very non-carpenter, because mm-hmm. um, it had you know, Chevy Chase being Chevy <laughs> Chase, and so that works. But yeah, then you go Halloween, and it's like though, you know, the jump is less incremental uh, between those two yeah, and the, compared to the other it's still amazing to see this change in the space of a few years between those it's like to see everything that he can do is in assault on precinct 13 everything you see in as we were we've done as we were just saying there we had all these films that have a feel to them and they all come from that that they definitely don't come from dark star dark star is yeah, very much not really a carpenter film in the traditional sense now as we know that's where he finds his style everything i like about carpenter films comes from it as a result and like i said all the best ones i find tend to copy some part of that formula but again the other part as i said is growing up on you know sunday morning tv and westerns and things where it would be on the tally all the time and my dad would watch you know Clint Eastwood stuff and uh, even later like you know where I've watched like Lucio Fulci's uh his westerns and things it's like I love something about them that feels you know timely no matter what you know you, what's the one I think of you know there's like Sergio Leone's films obviously copy uh Kurosawa's mm-hmm. you know in terms of what that style so even they aren't Inspired. It's like another step in that. Right. Yeah. It's like Kurosawa inspired Leone, Leone inspired other people, and it carried on. And Carpenter, I would imagine, partially inspired by that. But I think the other thing as well is the music. Again, it was the first first soundtrack where I was like, this really hits in, in an interesting way. Those opening sort of heartbeat esque you know, dum, dum, bits uh, and that sort of permeate throughout the film. Uh, it's the first time I really noticed a soundtrack. Not, you know, it isn't like a big John Williams right. score. It, it, was, it was just like, wow, this this catches my attention. And it was, I think it was a couple of years ago now. It was breathtaking to you know see Cub to perform that live. You know, amongst, uh, it's just yeah, hearing it in this big like hall with the atmospherics and things like that, and just hearing the, the thump thump. There, it was wow. It just it took me back in a weird way you know it's in video game terms it's when you get like a remake or a remaster of an old game and it when it captures it just right it nails exactly how it felt to you then so you almost feel like it's the same thing but it's clearly been updated and overhauled and refreshed and that that was just how he did it that night to, to understanding his own music that well it's like I've got the heart of it and now I've you know, changed it slightly for a modern audience. And uh, he did that with many of his soundtrack choices really well with the uh, anthology albums. It's, oof. I'm very jealous that you got to see him live. That's fantastic. Oh, man. Yeah. So I'm, I'm wearing, yeah, I'm wearing the, uh, tour sh- the tour shirt. So. <laughs> well, in getting to revisit Assault on Precinct 13 to talk with you today, um, that is the first thing that I really am taken with is the score. It's just the opening. Before you even see the credits, you hear that soundtrack, that, that synthesizer coming through in a way that if you're familiar with Carpenter, yeah, you're expecting that to a certain degree because he's so synth heavy in his films. And yet mm. it's so polished and it feels so fresh. And like you kind of said, this updating on it's it feels radically different from what you're expecting. Like what you said in terms of the kind of big orchestral yeah. scores and things like that, it feels very radical. And I think that that's kind of a testament to, I mean, I described him as being like a rebel filmmaker or re- the horror rebel filmmaker because he does so many things that feel radically different 
different. You wouldn't expect a score like that in a film that is at the core no. of this film. It's a modern updating on a Western, right? And so for him to start it That's with it. that soundtrack, which is just, I mean, it's a banger. There's no other way to describe it, no matter how many years later. Yeah, I mean, it it's still as fresh and it sounds as riveting, and yet it grabs your attention and it kind of, it shows the or, the early steps of Carpenter just being able to craft tension from the opening moments of his movies. And it does so in a way that, I mean, yeah. you're, I'm not expecting that when I go into a Western or I'm going into an action film, right? I'm expecting there to be action, obviously, and kind of these standoffs and things, and yet I'm very rarely kind of captivated from the credits, from the before I meet a character, right? Usually with those types of films, you have to get a little bit of investment going. But Carpenter's style, Absolutely. I mean, he's able to show off or basically give a preview of what's in store for the audience before you even get invested in anybody, before you even meet any characters. Mm. And I think that that is something that makes this film so special and so unique in that you're getting that from this guy who this is his second film. And I haven't seen Dark Star, but from everything I've heard, like it's not nearly as indicative of his overall filmmaking style and kind of music sensibilities as much as this film is. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely, it's uh, more of a, I don't want to say gun for hire sort of film, because it's not, he clearly wanted to do it. It's just, yeah, it doesn't have anything, because it's, I've got the other guy who does it now. So, Dan O'Bannon? Dan O'Bannon, yeah, Dan O'Bannon, that's it, I was trying to think, the alien, right? Yeah, and it's clearly his baby in a way, and that shines through more than the carpenter side of things. I mean, you know, it's not without redemption. It's just, it's boring a lot of the time and it's maybe not naff in the right way. Some people like, I get, get it and they, they like it for what it is and understandable. It's like, much as there are people that don't like you know, escape from LA. And it's like, <laughs> I think it's amazing. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's the Metal Gear Solid 2 of, of sequels, but carpenter sequel. <laughs> it's just like, it's him going, Oh, you wanted a sequel? Well, here you go. It's like, I'm going to give you the most non-sequel ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I don't want to speculate too much on a film I haven't seen, but I would assume that Dark Star being the first film experience that he has and it not coming out, I'm sure, the way exactly he wanted it. And like you said, he's almost he has to work with another creative. Mm. That's probably indicative of why his best films, some of the majority of them, like he's either doing the score, he's directing, he's doing um he's writing them you know what i mean it's yeah. him taking on double duty on a lot of his films so that way he has that creative control and i mean sure there are some films that he didn't write that are fantastic but i think early on a lot of his best work is the ones that he's doing either two or three or pulling two or three different types of roles in them because those are the most indicative of his style and i mean that comes through an assault on precinct precinct 13 in a way that when i first watched it again i didn't kind of have the entire Carpenter filmography in mind or the yeah. sort of uh, exposure to his other works. And so on a rewatch, again, it's just like, how could you not watch this movie and then not appreciate just how talented and how strong of a filmmaker he is from the jump? And then being able to trace that through his filmography of, okay, he's able to expand on this element and then he's able to expand on the music in a way that's really good here. Like, it's a remarkable film for what it is. I mean, yeah, it's... Um the fact that it's 90 minutes long and yet it, it takes its own time to get stuff done. It sets stuff up fairly well, you know, but doesn't give you the, the the key moment until much later in the film. It's like, I mean, the longest time I watched between it, uh, I came back to it thinking, how did they end up getting to the police station again with this? It's like, it's like, and then mm -hmm. of course the, the, the key thing is that, that scene, uh, you know, the big shocking scene at the time of it, but, I, the next time I ever saw it mentioned was in a magazine. They were doing like uh, uh, all these shocking scenes from movies, which was a good gateway thing because it showed me stuff like that. There were scenes from Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead that were like, oh, I want to see this and society. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah we, this, this <laughs> great. That that list provided many great uh, discoveries. I'll say that. So uh, yeah, that, that kid's death leading to this is just. I know, I know we're jumping ahead here for this, but it's like... Mm -hmm. No, it's perfect. Yeah, but it, it's shocking in the sense that it's done so casually. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no anger behind it. There's no malice, no contempt. It, it, he just very casually shoots a little girl for coming up and asking if she got the wrong ice cream. That's, that's, it, it's just 
nuts. <laughs> I mean, that is what is so shocking, I think, about the violence in general about this mm. film. And it's a testament to this. It makes sense why this film, the violence in this film feels so different for me than the rest of his films, right? He's no oh, yeah. stranger to violent movies and blood and gore and everything throughout his career. And yet coming back to this movie, it might be because he is so young and in his own words, like he was like, oh, I was a young and dumb filmmaker. Um, I don't know if it's that that is why there's so much flippancy, right? He has no qualms about kind of just casually throwing out violence that is very shocking and sudden. And like you said, it doesn't have a lot of anger or necessarily emotional stakes in it. It's just shocking in what it is. And it's yeah. very, pl I mean, before you even get to the kid being killed, the film opens up with the gang members getting gunned down in the alley. And to me, that is kind of a shocking scene because again, usually in films, you're used to people, yeah, he drew on me first. That's kind of like the Western yeah. thing, right? I'm not gonna gun you down until you draw your gun on me. And this yet there's a group of teenagers essentially, or young adults that are like, they're fleeing the scene and they just get gunned down and you see blood and everything splashing on the walls. And for me, I mean, by this at this point, like pretty desensitized the most violence in movies, <laughs> yes. but just how casually he kills all those characters in a matter of seconds. And we don't know anything else about the film yet because that's how the film opens. Yeah. I mean, it's a shockingly affecting opening for uh, that sets the tone very well, I think. Yeah, and it shows the, you know, the gang's numbness to violence as it is later when, you know, the father of the child goes on a revenge mission to go and kill the guy that killed her. And they retaliate without, you know, thinking about, well, is it not a bit silly to be retaliating with a whole gang of us against one guy? No, apparently not. That's it. You know, so, <laughs> and they do. It's like, they don't care that they killed a child, but mm -hmm. they are very annoyed that that one guy that killed a child got killed. And it's like, uh, uh, yeah, it's, that I find fascinating. And again, has that old West feel that I, I think of uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, you know, which is one of the meaner ones in that regard, where they, they're like, yeah, okay. You know, we're we're not gonna care if we kill anyone in the line of work. It happens. It happens. You know, it's like right. <laughs> it's that kind of cool. Even like um, Fulci's westerns kind of have a lot of that. Whereas I think Silver Saddle opens with like this, this kid gets his his dad gets his brains blown out in front of him. Pretty much as mm -hmm. a kid sets him out on this revenge mission for the rest of the film. Growing up, but it's like I like that, and it, it works so well for it. I think. Again, like him being such a young filmmaker, it's shocking that he's able to pull it off as casually as he does, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it happens and then he moves on. And I was what I was really surprised about was how fluidly, again, you mentioned like it's such a brisk and snappy 90 minute film. Yeah. And the setup, I think, is there's not a ton of depth there. And yet he's able to do a really great job of kind of building the world, introducing three separate storylines. We have the prison transport, there's Bishop reporting the station, and then you have the gang. And yeah. he's able to introduce three sets of characters, three different events that are going on, and he's able to include those like timestamps and locations for everything, which, I mean, the times, the locations don't mean anything to me, but it's it still is affecting in that it establishes the location. It establishes some sort of geography in the sense that the movie begins and it almost feels like a documentary in a certain way, like a true crime documentary Yeah. Um, that I think it lends a lot to something that is so simple. I mean, it's about, it's a prison movie. It's about a siege and things like that. And it's kind of extrapolating or it's a modern updating on the Western like Alamo movies. But at the same time, he's able to make it very palatable. I feel like for a, for the time, like the modern audience. But even now, I think that is what, has allowed the film to hold up as well as it does. Mm. I think that comes through mainly, you know, in the one character, which is Napoleon, where, you know, he is the, I mean, if any character is the absolute throwback whilst there being a very modern version of it, it's him because he, he, he is the old bandit, you know, the old bandit, the cowboy guy in in to be hanged off they take him but no here he is he he's teaming up with the good guy cop who again very good that they didn't make him like this oh look at him he's just so naive because he's so good and proper and wholesome you know that bounces off well with napoleon and it's like even though they're you know different sides of this fight in one way they work well together because there's a common thread for them with like you know well 
we, we want to live through this night that's it uh, and we'll do everything and then there's a level of respect that comes between them as the film goes on and ends just perfectly as it does with that and that contrasted to the violence where the violence is like we said it's so mean and it's so nasty mm. that doesn't rub off onto the characters and that captures i think like the core of a western in that it's very much about these people that are unlikely allies and yet they have to form some type of like temporary friendship or agreement between one another if they want to live to see another day and i think had he not focused on that so much and like you said having napoleon and bishop play off one another so well it the film doesn't work i think as long as it does in between kind of once we get into the full siege when it's yeah. focusing on their back and forth banter and whatnot i don't know if if that relationship had not been established that those kind of like downtime in between waves of the siege would work nearly as well as they do yeah i think i think this is true in the remake is that uh the way they get wrong especially in that relationship is that they make it more about bickering mm. you know about oh you know i'm right you know look at you you're making stupid decisions being a good guy oh you you're bad because you're a bad guy it's like <laughs> they don't it doesn't they don't have time to argue it so in the original so they're just yeah okay it's like i know no one's dying here why should i let you die here you you know his belief in justice is you know you're you're supposed to die by execution so my as a policeman my job is to make sure that's what happens it's like <laughs> it's like and really you know they're on the same page for that it's like i was it um yeah napoleon himself says I, i've been out of time since i was born you know it's a, mm -hmm. he's, he's he's resigned to the fact that he's not coming out of this which is you know something that doesn't really you don't really think about necessarily until the end of your life for you know what they don't just go Oh, I'll go on. You go escape, you little scamp. Because yeah, <laughs> right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just because you've done me a solid and been a good guy, they both know it's like uh, I'm going to uphold the law, whatever. But uh, I respect you, uh, so I'm going to take a walk with you here. That even though you are going to ultimately die, because you know whatever you did is going to get you that that punishment. And I think that that is at the core again of this being a western in that there's that kind of like mutual respect for one another and it's okay we're going to uphold this agreement mm. and there's not going to be i mean not to say there's never any double crossing in westerns but i the film being constructed as a western i think for me is what makes that relationship work so well mm. and had it not it might have came like you said in the remake i, I guess it, there's a lot of bickering and things like that at the end of that film if they spend the whole time at each other's throats i would expect one of them to break the agreement that they had, right? Somebody trying yeah. to double cross somebody else. Whereas in this, at the end of the film, let's say Napoleon spins around and shoots Bishop and escapes through the vent in the basement. Yeah. That would not feel like a apt ending because it would almost feel like, oh, well, he betrayed the kind of honor code that they had. Yeah. And I feel that that wouldn't make sense for the world that Carpenter crafted in this. No, this is it. And that's a, that is a very good point. It just makes it, I mean, he has the opportunity, you know, the, mm -hmm. to go do that. You know, the the character could easily have just turned around and said, "Yep, I'll go." They could have, in another film, like I said, they could have made that the thing, the happy ending. Oh, go on, you go escape while we pretend we didn't see you. And it's like, and it would have been totally viable because by the time they'd all sorted everything out, oh, you escaped in the ruckus, etc. But they didn't, and I like that about it. it, it like I said, it, this whole film goes around with Bishop and his sense of justice and wanting to do right because he's a you know fresh on the beat cop who wants to prove himself you know, he's a lieutenant isn't he and yeah he, he wants to prove his worth and he's still not cynical enough to be not not see the good in someone even if they are you know worthy of death it seems so and that is the core of bishop's character i think in that Bishop's character eventually decides that he's going to let the two criminals out of the cell so they can help repel this assault. Had it not been Bishop and the command, the shift commander that he relieves had been the one in Bishop's shoes, yeah. he would have just left them in the cells to die and then eventually they would have gotten overthrown. And that is what I think is so interesting about Bishop's character in that he's willing, he's not willing to sacrifice his view and his kind of uh, upholding of the law. And yet he's willing to see some semblance, no matter how like slight of a sliver of goodness yeah. in a person. He's like, well, we can use that in a way that, again, it doesn't result in the film being this 
bickering back and forth, which now that you mentioned that, like, I'm so thankful that the film <laughs> isn't just that, right? It's not them being like, well, you're a goddamn criminal, so, like, of course you want to just kill everybody or something like that. And it's like... Yeah, it's, it's something that gets seen so often. Uh, you just, you expect it in a lot of films these days, where you just think, oh, yeah, of course, good guy, bad guy, the anti-hero thing, the, the, they're not going to get along until the end. And that's Yeah, it, it's overplayed, and I like that again that it just wasn't the case here at all and now for a brief intermission if you've been enjoying this episode of daily horror habit please take a moment to subscribe to the show on your preferred streaming platform or leave us a review on itunes and thank you for your continued support and i hope you enjoy the remainder of today's horrifying episode i had forgotten also how just how funny a lot of the dialogue is and how snappy it is it's something that i was really impressed with in carpenter and that he was i mean granted they had such a strong uh, core for uh, actors for the film and yet the dialogue is so snappy and it's it's very tongue-in-cheek in a lot of different ways and of course like uh, Napoleon Wilson who's played by Darwin Justin um, does such a fantastic job of selling it like when oh, yeah. he's getting moved to the prisoner's bus and then the prison warden just like sucker elbows him in the back of the head and he's like oh I don't sit in chairs as well as I used to um, <laughs> and like mo- little moments like that are his recurring like anybody got a smoke bit that comes up throughout the film i mean there's so many great little moments of dialogue between these characters that it sells this kind of temporary friendship or temporary agreement right it it feels very organic despite the fact that these are two people from two opposite sides of the law they're able to find a common ground in a certain vernacular almost with one another that works really well and again i mean not to keep uh perseverating on it but like this it's so easily could have just been them bitching about I'm good and you're bad for the 40 minutes in the between of this movie. Yeah. Which, you know, ironically, when you go to something like the thing is what a bunch of people who know each other very well end up doing. It's like, <laughs> and that's the difference. Uh, and it, but it works there because it's a bunch of people who know each other so well that they're worried that someone isn't who they say they are. So it makes, it brings something into a trusted group in, in isolation uh, going back to what you're saying yeah with the dialogue it, it, yeah there are just he gets so many great little zingers i remember the um bit where charles cypher's character is in the the bus of him asking him about you know the why you just why why would you why you like this and he goes you're not a psychopath you're not stupid and he says oh, but i am an asshole you can't take everything away from me <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah well also like to go back to the fact that he is very much a sort of anti-hero from a Western in that he's very, he has that mysterious quality, right? Mm. Nobody know It's never revealed why he's on death row. Obviously if he's on death row, it can't be for anything good, but yeah. it's never revealed. And he is even very coy about it. When people ask him, he's like, you want to ask me, don't you to multiple people. And everybody is very inquisitive. And yet he's like, yeah, maybe I'll, uh, I'll, I'll tell you one day yeah. or something like that. That's and then good. towards the end, when they're about to, they think that they're about to get overrun by the uh, by the gangs. He's like, oh, I might be able to tell you a lot sooner or something like that, um, <laughs> which I love. Just to, again, it's a recurring element to his character that makes him mysterious. And yet he's a death row inmate that we want to see live. I find yeah. that such a rare quality. He's a guy that by all accounts is a scumbag murderer. And yet throughout the film, you're like this guy. I don't want this guy to die. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It, it puts that seed of doubt in there. But, mm-hmm. you know, the when that character is referred to by other people you know and they bring up his name you know i think when bishop's told the name and he's like he clearly knows who he is so it's clearly like a big deal has happened with, with him and i think they mentioned he killed people plural so yeah. it's a case of why and i think that's the thing no one knows why he did it and that's that's why people are fascinated by him in the movie as well but yeah he, yeah, clearly knows how to handle himself and you can see that yes it's quite possible that this is this is a man who murdered multiple people you know you, you see when he gets chucked the shotgun and he just does that you know, over the shoulder ka-ching done like that it's he's efficient and very cool and going back to that western thing the way everyone's eyes are lit uh, and you notice you know the shadows are positioned differently especially during that last few shots where you know the different parts of their face are sort of highlighted very well and it just has that sort of look at the eyes thing which is a very western thing to do absolutely and before we kind of move on from dialogue i have to mention the scene when 
Bishop goes to get coffee and uh and Lee says uh black and he goes for over 30 years <laughs> like that line kills me every time and it's such a goofy like line that I don't think his character has many kind of like just overtly humorous lines throughout the film he has a yeah. couple but I mean that line stands out so well in just Carpenter's ability to capture multiple different types of voices you know what I mean I find that yeah. sometimes it's very rare that well, I don't know if I should overgeneralize but it's not always the case where a creative decides that they're going to write and direct, right? Sometimes it mm. comes off, it's like, did they really need to write that? Could their time have been spent better either just focusing on writing or just focusing on directing? And it, the dialogue in this is shows just how versatile Carpenter is from yeah. such an early stage in his career. I mean, basically, he's, a, he's green behind the ears, right? It's his second movie. And his ability to kind of capture multiple voices and... For the most part, I mean, the character, it's such a small cast. I feel like characters aren't necessarily wasted. Granted, the guy that comes to take refuge in the police station, I mean, he doesn't say anything for the entire mm. movie. So, But his character at least serves a purpose in terms of pushing the plot forward, right? The thugs that are descending on the siege, they want to get to him. It's not really important that he says anything, I suppose, because we saw why, right? He yeah. guns down the guy that murders his daughter so flippantly. Again, and it's again, speaks to the strength of justice that Bishop seeks, you know, where he doesn't care what he has or right. hasn't done or what's happened to him. It's like, he came in asking us for help. That's it. You know, Absolutely. we're going to help him. And that's it. And it's clearly he's needing help from people who are out to kill him. It's more likely he's going to need help than they are. So it's, yeah, it, it's good that they leave it ambiguous and they don't just have him suddenly have this because there's a bit near the end where you think he's just going to suddenly turn around and go, well, what happened was blah, 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 blah. <laughs> right. And uh, yeah, or they, you know, they killed her. They killed my daughter, that sort of thing. Seemed like it could happen. But again, there's a cynicism and, uh, with the friendship side of everything going on. And, but not cynical to the point where it's like uh, cloying. Like, okay, we get it. Everything's terrible. And believe it's like, because it's in Bishop, they have this character who, finds hope in everything and without being you know plucky happy-go-lucky guy he's he just like a he understands the world of shit the place he's doing what he's doing is he understands what he's doing is a shit job and the situation gets shitter and shitter but yeah you know, he does what he has to do to get through it again because he has this sense of what is right and wrong and employs it in a very non-cynical way he's you know the, the non-cynical part of the entire film and that, as we said, rubs off on other characters throughout because, you know, they don't know him. Being, he's the other newcomer in this story. It's like it makes, you know, he is infectious in, in that in that regard. And like I said, they end up rubbing off on each other a little bit you know, in terms of respect. And yeah, it, it's fascinating to think that because it's such a simple premise for a film and, you know, there's not much, you know, the dialogue that is there isn't, Know, greatly going into detail about the characters but you pick up on these things just in the way the story goes as you said there are very easy things to do in that story that they don't do as we said you know with the the bickering and the double crossing and a lot of ambiguity left in and again that just speaks to the strength of it and it never becomes that kind of like i'm holier than thou because i'm good right mm. we never get any kind of overbearing monologues where he's beat where bishops beating everybody over the head with the fact that i am the law right you never mm. get that kind of i think again yeah that comes from again where you know, he brings up that you know he grew up around this bad area and he understands it a bit and i think that that again feeds into him as a character that you know he gets why people might turn to crime and why they might be in that but at the same time he wants to be different to that so on this rewatch i kind of interpreted this as this being carpenter's kind of like incredibly anti-authority film um, hmm. and I kind of wanted to bounce some ideas off you just to see if you agree or not because this is a movie that it's 1976 I believe it's not yeah. a mis it's not an accident that the lead is a black man it's not elite it's not a um, uncalculated decision to make him the figurehead in this yeah. world and I think that it's very interesting that he's a cop he's a cop in a position of power and we get those brief moments when he enters the station where, I don't know if I'm reading too much into it, but 
I almost feel like the two white cops that are working there at the police station almost like treat him kind of like a joke, right? That one cop yeah. that's working at the desk, he's a lieutenant, and the guy doesn't even bother like looking up when he walks in, and he's yeah. kind of in like- In fact, he's very sardonic when he goes, oh, you know, sir, sort of thing, and it's like, he's just, you know, and yeah, I think the fact that he gets given this job to begin with is pretty much like, uh, you know, it's like, we don't want to give you anything interesting to do, so. Let's give you this boring, what they think is going to be a boring job for the night. And yeah, and again, that maybe that runs through the whole film again and how he feels and how he sort of bonds with, with Napoleon because, you know, it's like they get it. You know, it's like people look down on them and think this certain way of them as people and they came through it anyway. And it's right. like, so it's like, I'm, I want to, you know, walk side by side with you out here because, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you know, you're, you're as good a guy as me in a tight spot. Yeah, and I thought that that kind of, again, feeds into this anti-authority in that just the por- kind of like the portrayal of police in general, I feel, is not a necessarily super favorable one, right? I mean, the mm. film begins with the cops gunning down uh, gang members that had weapons, but they were running away, right? It's not yeah. this kind of like back and forth shootout where it's like yeah you're fighting for your life you have to protect yourself it's essentially it seems like a group of kids that are like running away um and then you have of course you have like napoleon getting beat and it's not it's not even like addressed or anything right it's kind of like oh yeah this is just what we do we just i'm just gonna elbow this prisoner in the back of the head and then make a joke about it to the degree that the other cop there that's part in charge of the transport he kind of just like gives the guy gives the warden the look like yeah, I'm a cop. I'm not going to say anything, but it's like, I don't know if that's how we should be doing things necessarily. Mm. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of that into it, I'd say. Yeah, it makes sense in a lot of ways, I'd say. Yeah, and even like the prison transport cop gives uh, gives Bishop like a ton of shit for like the phones are out and all of this kind of chaos is happening. And yet like Bishop just got there, essentially. None yeah, of this like- is his fault. <laughs> and he's like, oh, you run such a... This is like a chicken shit operation. He says something to that extent. And it's one of yeah, those and it's like when like, he's already said to him, it's like, yeah, we have nothing. Yeah, we're closed. <laughs> it's like, it's like, yeah, it, yeah, people do just tend to ignore him, apart from the few people who don't really have power. It, it, it's noticeable you know, in the uh, receptionist as well. It's, uh, yeah, you can see that sort of correlation between them. Mm-hmm. Mm. And kind of just, again, coming back to this idea that it's obviously it, this is not a horror film. And yet there's a lot of elements to it that feel reminiscent of Carpenter's later horror films, of course. Like we yeah. have this kind of like the build up to the siege where first the phone lines are cut, then the power's cut. And then, oh, that other cop fell down in front of the police station. And then they realize like, no, he was just murdered in front of the police station. And then, of <laughs> course, it escalates from there. And that kind of bleeds into... The portrayal of the street gang which again i had seen this movie only for the first time a couple years ago and then kind of getting to expose myself to more and more and more horror films of course it's almost like you can't not see this as being a heavily influenced film from like night of living dead right because the gang they literally walk they walk none of them really run until like things officially pop off but they're basically walking out of the darkness and the shadows and then they're just ready to go and they're just ready to prey upon the station in a way that's like super unsettling for a uh, for a action film. Yeah. Yeah, it is very. And I think, you know, it had influence on uh, parts of Resident Evil 2 in later years. You know, the police station there has a lot of moments like that, you know. And even to a point, Resident Evil 4, when there's the whole siege mission in that, uh, has a, a lot of similarities. So it did actually then jump back into horror in other places. So it had it influences there but um yeah for me like i think it was a decade ago now i used to work as a night porter at a hotel and this film always came to my mind uh, in terms of thinking well you know it's an ordinary night it's quiet but anyone could walk in that door and things could change just like that it, and you're on your own and sometimes things did like happen like that no yeah not to this extreme clearly but otherwise <laughs> 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 I'd, I'd be telling you that story straight out the gate <laughs> right case. but no, like you know you'd get like uh like weekend parties and someone will bring some people back that didn't belong in the hotel and then it's like your job to go and make sure they leave and it's like you get those moments where you're like, this could turn ugly and it's like that 
is where the, the horror for me ended up being with that mm. years later and it was just like jesus man that, that film has ruined me for being <laughs> but, uh, in, in a strange way but yeah there's always just this point in the night when you can, until everybody is in this hotel like they should be at night and i've locked up this is always a chance that something off is going to happen and yeah it's it was a new appreciation for that film as a result Absolutely. The the unknowing of what can come out of the dark, right? I mean, mm. again, it, the a strength of the film in that regard is that it's ironic that like the police station is supposed to be viewed as like a place of safety. And yet yeah. it's the place where hell is unleashed on this part of uh, L.A. for the evening. I think yeah. also it's interesting too, just Carpenter's ability to make something so standard in action movies or in crime movies, which is like a gang. OK, it's a gang yeah. like we've seen that before. And yet he gives them this almost like supernatural quality in starters because they are seemingly endless. Usually mm -hmm. a gang is like 20, 30 guys. And in this, it's just a never ending horde. But then he does things like they barely speak, which makes them seem like not people. They, again, like I said a minute ago, they're a majority of the time they're walking early on. They're not even like running or being evasive. They are later in the film, but they're introduced as being just very kind of passive and then yeah. they even have like that weird blood oath at the beginning of the film, which is just like very strange and very weird in a way that, yeah, you've probably seen something like that before, but such a brief little seemingly innocuous moment, it makes them seem like it's a threat that normal people can't deal with almost. Yeah, I think one that comes back to me when I think of like uh, you know, gangs with that sort of rituals to them, uh, I think of in Predator 2 with the Colombians. Oh, yeah. You know, where they have all the blood rituals and stuff like that. And it's so over the top and like crazy. And like they're going, you know, they're all crazy because, you know, it's the, 80, the end of the 80s and Coke, Coke, Coke. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> it's, and it just, you see this and it's very different, as you say, and, and has that zombie like quality. And the other thing is, it's a very multicultural gang. It's yes. not, it's like there's no one, you know, focus. It's like, it's not pointing out, oh, like, and I think maybe that's a deliberate choice because again, it goes back to this, like, you know, yeah, it can come from any, yeah, crime can come from anywhere. It's, it's not necessarily about being in one, you know, one ethnicity or one group that caused the trouble. It's like, it comes from everywhere. And it, I think another thing with that, the police station being shut down is another way of thinking like, it feels like the police have given up on this mm. area they're, they're saying we don't want we wash our hands of this area let it let the criminals just take it because we couldn't handle it but it was too much and that's it and that's what that's why they're maybe they're so passive and you know, apathetic to everything it's just like oh well you know we just this is our place you know we, we do what we want and it's like and they know it that's a really great point because when bishop gets to the station the sergeant is telling him about all the uh, influxes of calls that they're getting about all these violent crimes and property crimes to the point where you're like, why the fuck are you guys closing the station down? It sounds like you all have plenty of work to do. Like it doesn't sound like there's a shortage of things to do here. So that I think is a great point, but also going back to the multicultural nature of the gang, I think the example of predator too, is that like, that's kind of like the stereotypical portrayal of like the Jamaicans or whatever different take, yeah. pick your ethnicity group. And we're going to, portrayed i mean granted that film feels like it was solely fueled on coke and madness um that, that but, film I mean, is coke in yeah. <laughs> <It's just> coke. <laughs> <laughs> but so that in itself like there's these stereotypical caricatures of people and it's like all the whole movie is kind of ridiculous in a certain way um but not to say it's without total uh, redeeming values but oh i, think, I love it but yeah, yeah <laughs> there's there's Despite. definitely uh, there's definitely some moments in that film that um that don't get its shine, I think, in terms of just it being a sequel. But what I was going to say was, is that Carpenter, uh, it was a, he decided on purpose to make the gang multicultural, right? That was something mm. that he had in mind. And I think that, like you said, if it's kind of like, it has nothing to do with, oh, this one group is bad or these two groups are bad. If it's a multicultural gang that has no qualms about committing these acts of violence, it's more a commentary on kind of humanity in general, or rather, the again to come yeah. back to anti-authority it's it's a failure of government or police in a certain sense where it's like okay it's not just one group in an area it's the entire area has been soured or 
It's been uh, the upkeep that is supposed to be there hasn't been there to the degree where now they're assaulting police stations because one person got murdered. Yeah, this is it. It's like they, it's pretty much turned into an us versus them situation where uh, everyone's common unifying bond is uh, the police have been shit to us. They don't, the, the community, nothing helps us. Uh, no one's helping this community. So we'll do it for ourselves. And uh, unfortunately, because the way it's been left, it ends up being a violent community. Uh, Well, that's the way we're getting what we want, so we'll carry on doing it. It's, yeah, I mean, it's hyper-stylized and obviously, you know, to the point where it's, you know, it's not really something that would happen, but it's, yeah, in allegorical terms, it it works. I mean, that's a thing that, that's a talent of Carpenter's that we see grow out of this film, right? He's able to make these fantastical films that, I mean, you've got monsters in the Arctic, you've got the craziness of Sutter Kane and all of these different events. You've got New York becoming a, uh, a prison island. And while the larger concepts of those films are very, quite fantastical, he's able to put you in the moment in a way that doesn't make it feel ridiculous, right? And I think that that is a testament to his ability to craft these characters and, I mean, casting the right people and obviously the narratives that go along with them, but they're really able to make you become invested in these characters that are in ludicrous situations and yet you're so invested in them that you don't care right yeah. i mean escape from new york might seem a little more uh, a little more realistic these days but i mean even something like the thing it's this idea that like there's people that it's all about people at the beginning and then when you yeah. isolate these people that all know each other and they're supposedly know each other better than anybody else in this area and yet there's a monster now all of a sudden but you're so invested in them that it's like yeah i can overlook the fact that like there's a monster that's infecting everybody kind of thing you know yeah absolutely <laughs> before i kind of ask you my uh, my wrap-up question were there any moments in assault on precinct 13 that particularly stand out to you that i skipped over i mean the thing that always makes every time i watch the film uh, i get to always get to the point of when uh, napoleon asks for a smoke and yeah. finally, finally gets one and it takes uh, you know with 20 minutes to go is about when he gets it it's like mm-hmm. it's just amazing it's like that <laughs> I, I think um the other thing's not said enough i know we talked about the dynamic between bishop and napoleon but um also laurie zimmer's uh lee was yes. the, it's a, the third wheels unfortunately on that one but she more than holds her own as well in that and you know again the way they light her with just the eyes across and like that and just the slow response to things when she's asked stuff and so it's, it's delivered in a very old-timey way but it's, it makes her feel like a, a 1930s character you know in a lot of ways but with that sort of modern edge and yeah she just amazingly well and it's like it's we also got the um nancy keys is uh, loomis uh, as it is uh you know getting her little role in there again before being seen again and again with that so <laughs> yeah yeah, it's yeah. I think it, it's good that you know they had that sort of third outlet. You know, not just the dynamic between those two, like um, oh, Tony Burton, of course, you know, who ends up being Apollo Creed's trainer yeah. uh, a few years <laughs> later. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah. tur- things worked out all right for him. Yeah, they did. They did. <laughs> it's like yeah, I, again, another character where it's like they could easily have had him do the betrayal when he got to escape. He looks, you know, they left, leave it a little ambiguous because they leave him at that crossroads where he's looking at the phone box to go and call. And he's got that smile on his face. And I think, is he thinking I'm going to fuck off or is he thinking I'm just going to, I'll go and I've made it. And obviously we don't get to find out because he gets shot. And again, it's just another, another one of those things where it sort of leaves it without any sort of resolution and you're kind of happy that they don't. I could see how that might be frustrating for people who like closure on things because this film is terrible for giving closure on things. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, but yeah, it's another sort of string in the bow of what makes it work. That ambiguity though, I think is what makes it so strong. And I mean, they have, these characters are grappling with that, that morality. It's like, hey, this is a person that is going to, that's in prisons. One of them's on the way to death row if they had a moment that they never had the opportunity to kind of like change their ways or pay for their past sins, is this that moment? And I think that that kind of like, is he going for the telephone or is he going to fuck off and escape? That's a pretty pivotal moment. And leaving that ambiguous, I really like because again, like, I don't know, I'm a fan of those ambiguous moments because it's like, is this guy going to 
take the is he going to take the situation and really look at his life and be like, am I going to do something for good for a change, or am I? This is just who I am, and I'm going to accept that. But um, and you're mentioning Lee. Actually, I can't believe I forgot to bring it up. I love her character because she never becomes this kind of like damsel in distress that's constantly screaming her head off and she needs help with everything. Nice. I mean, even when she gets shot, she never kind of like throws herself on the ground or starts screaming and stuff. She kind of just eats it. And then she goes on to like kick one of the prisoners or one of the thugs <laughs> in the nuts. And then of course, uh, Napoleon breaks his arm. But even like when Bishop gives her the handgun to guard the door, she knows how to load it already. We don't get this kind of drawn out sequence oh i don't know how to use a gun kind of thing you know yeah. it's like she can give it as good as she takes it from these this uh, assault as it were yeah she really does uh, and obviously that why she sort of connects with uh, napoleon so well and again another thing they could have done quite wishy-washy and had her sort of embrace him and do it all that at the <laughs> end it's like they didn't she's just getting this long lingering look and she's like she knows this is it. I'm probably not going to see you again now because you know, you, you're going up there to go back to jail and that's it. But yeah, it's she feels clearly feels regret that it's like he's someone I really connected with. It's just a shame that he's a murderer who's going to death row. But uh. <laughs> that's more. I mean, that's more effective. That kind of like, oh, I could see this working out in another life kind of thing. That's more yeah. effective than it being. Having some kind of tender embrace with a guy that might have killed like upward multiple people, like you said, which in the end is not realistic at all, <laughs> and kind of just it's like, oh well, you know, he's he's handsome and he's what do they call him? They call him smooth, and it's like, yeah. oh, he's handsome and smooth, so he could just kill like five or ten or fifteen or twenty people, not a big deal. <laughs> uh, but I think it kind of just wrapping up. My final question for you is: if you had to bill a John Carpenter double feature for those unfamiliar with his work, which two movies would you pick and why? Ooh, now this is good because there were so many variations. I was thinking, do I make it timely? You know, as it timely as it can be, or do you just sort of try and distance his work? And I thought I'd make it somewhat timely in terms of theme, which also shows how far he came in a short space of time. So, you know, boringly for everyone else, I'm sure, Assault on Precinct 13 is the first half of that in. And then the second half is the thing. Now, mm. the common thread, as I said before, is two things, isolation and distrust and how those things are handled. Um, you know, isolation is there in different ways, as we've said. One is pure isolation and like you have nowhere else to go. Um, the second is in, you know, enforced isolation where you could go somewhere, but you'll be dead you know, if you do. Um, with the distrust, it's handled differently, as we said earlier. There's a group of people who've worked together for years, it seems, and know each other's habits, uh, annoying or otherwise, and they are made to distrust each other by an outsider. Uh, whereas you know, Assault on Precinct 13 is about a bunch of outsiders technically coming to, into a new place and defending it against another bunch of outsiders. And yet, there's, you know, the way the trust is handled there, while it gets brought up, um, ultimately is left a bit more up in the air about how that could be handled. Um, yeah, uh, so in effect, in both films, both groups are as alone as each other you know, from the rest of the world, and they have to do what they, they have to rely on themselves to solve the problem. And the, the common thing in it with this is seeing how Carpenter handles that same thematic thing in such different ways, you know, in two different genres, in the space of four years, or four or five years, sorry, six years. So, <laughs> but yeah, um, it it's remarkable. You know, it's like it's in the middle of his hot streak. Yes, everyone's gonna, I would say, you know, seeing no Halloween, and yes, there are deeper cuts you you could make. But I think if you were really trying to get the essence of what Carpenter can do, it, those two films are really good. At that and you know, in a time where isolation. It's still a, it's a big thing for a lot of people. It, it's mm. interesting way of seeing how that gets handled. Yeah, absolutely. And I really like that you highlighted just the idea that if you were to watch those films back to back, it shows you how a lot of the stylistic things that stand out in Assault on Precinct 13, how he just takes them and runs with them in a completely different genre. And yet it complements that film so much uh, more, the thing. Mm. And seeing how he's grown on those, right? It's not kind of like copy and pasting 
those early stylistic things of, or tendencies no. of his. It's him expanding on all of that. And of course, it's remarkable that he takes the stakes of the thing, which are raised so much more than Assault on Precinct 13. It's the stakes are the end of the world in, this, in the thing. And yet everything that he employs in Assault on Precinct 13, it works there in a heightened fashion. And it never really... You might think like, oh, if the stakes are raised, then there might start to be cracks in some of the elements that really worked in Assault on Precinct 13 because that was very much the stakes are their lives, right? Yeah. Whereas when you start talking about the end of the world, you might have a tendency to be like, well, maybe some of, there's some cracks in the foundation of that. But really, it just he personifies those things so well and refines them in a manner that, I mean... It, it's it's why that the thing is like in the middle of that hot streak of his, right? Even if yeah, people at the time didn't realize it for whatever reason. <laughs> yeah, and again, I think there's a uh, another common thread between them, which is you know the the, the main characters uh, end up you know pretty much similar ways, you know, uh, where characters are pretty much thinking, well, nothing's really going to change here, you know, but the only way we can really make it out of here is to work together and then the case of the thing that's you know just to sit there and die you know whereas whereas in assault on precinct 13 the solution is uh, we'll work together even though we know that death is a certainty for one of us regardless it's like um, yeah it's again similar sort of way of doing things little tweaks and but like i said two completely different movies yeah absolutely yeah and I think that's a great place to uh, to wrap up but hey man it was a pleasure having you on to chat about assault on precinct and john carpenter yeah it's very pleasant to do so i must say <laughs> well i hope to have you uh, hope to have you on again in the future sometime soon but thanks again man absolutely no problem thank you if you enjoyed this episode please subscribe to daily horror habit on your preferred streaming service and follow the show on instagram at daily horror habit and on twitter at daily horror pod for episode updates Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you guys next time.